Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19 and it's the the passage uh, for Palm Sunday which begins at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen. Oh, there we go. I start again. Reverse, reverse, come back in. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm one of the ministers here at Dapto Anglican. I'm really excited to be here, and I hope you are too. It is my absolute privilege to preach to you this morning God's word. But before I do that, how about we pray and ask for God's help in doing so. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you've poured out to us through your Son. We also praise you and thank you that your word is alive and transformative. We pray this morning as we hear your word that we will be transformed by it. Allow us to have ears that are ready to hear and hearts ready to receive. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. There's a piece of advice I was given quite a while ago that sort of stuck with me. I haven't been able to shake it. See, my mum used to always cast me as like, Matthew, you're very black and white. There's no grey. It's either right or it's either wrong. And I've always had a hard time shifting that mindset. The advice I was given is that humanity is far too complex to be just black and white. You know, if you look back in history, you you can't actually say there's only good guys and bad guys. History is far too complex for that. And I've been thinking about the series that we've been going through, the year of opposition. I can't help but think that logically, opposition can't be that simple. I think it's fair to say that perhaps opposition is not one-sided. See, you could do a certain action that is a challenge of opposition towards somebody else, 
and they are more than likely going to respond with an oppositional response of their own. But it doesn't necessarily have to be an action that's going to cause that. It could be just the person, who they are, that, that actually makes some sort of statement of opposition. Just them being them is the challenge of opposition to a group of people and they are likely to respond with opposition. Opposition is rarely one-sided. As a church, we have been going through the big-picture years of Jesus' earthly ministry. We've looked at the year of popularity and we are now currently in the year of, of opposition. Last week, David looked at the parable of the tenants and we saw that Jesus at this point, as opposition is rising and the clouds are coming in, he is very aware of the fact that the opposition is there. He is also very aware of that the climax of that opposition will be his death. He knows that he will be killed by the very people he has, he has been sent to save. This week, the threat of opposition is still very much in the air. But our passage gives us a whole new dimension than, we, than what we're used to thinking of this for so far. We know there's opposition on one side, but we actually see in our passage this morning that Jesus himself is a challenge of opposition. In fact, he is the challenge of opposition. Why? Because Jesus is the promised king and he is on his way into Jerusalem to reclaim his throne. In short, we see that this, this week, the year of opposition is not one-sided. Jesus has been on a journey towards the city of Jerusalem. In our passage today, we see that his disciples have, he and his disciples have reached the Mountain of Olives. This is in a very important location. The Mount of Olives, Luke is using this location as a way of framing everything that he's going to be talking about. See, the Mount of Olives has always been, for the Jewish people, a place of worship. The prophet Zechariah points out that the Mount of Olives is actually a place of revelation for the Messiah, the promised king. Zechariah prophesies that after the nations have ravaged Jerusalem, the Lord will fight against them on the day of battle. He also prophesies in Zechariah 14 verse 4, that on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. Then he continues in verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Luke is using the mountain as a way of framing for us to realise that there's a sense of fulfilment happening. It's a lot like having a photo of a certain moment, but then drawing in the extra details just to help convey all the significance that that moment captures. This moment of Jesus reaching the Mountain of Olives is recorded in only three of the four Gospels. But what is particularly unique about Luke's recording of this moment is how detailed he is compared to the others. He really wants to make clear that Jesus is the promised King, the one who has been promised from the line of David, a king after God's own heart. And finally, now, after so much waiting, so much build-up, the king has arrived. And now he stands above his kingdom, looking down. But Luke's picture of Jesus' fulfillment isn't complete yet. Luke records that Jesus then sends two of his disciples and says to them in verse 30, 
Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's a little bit of a strange thing for Jesus, who, if he's supposed to be the king, for him to ask his disciples to go and find a donkey. It just feels a bit strange. But it wouldn't feel so strange if you were hearing echoes behind this request of Genesis 49, 10 to 11. This particular passage describes a beautiful and affluent king, a king who is wise and who has disposable riches. He, in this, this king has so much disposable riches that what he ends up doing is just tying a donkey to a, to a vine and walking away. And this, and this strange request is something that is actually uh, we use as a contrast for us to help understand. The rich and beautiful king is contrasted with the lowly king, that is Jesus. The king that has nowhere to lay his head. The king that is not, has nothing appealing about him. The donkey also echoes the promises of Zechariah 9, 9, which Nikki alluded to this morning where it reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But that isn't the only echo that Luke is playing with in the background of the picture that he's painting of who Jesus is. The cult Jesus describes, uh, sorry, the, the cult that Jesus' disciples are sent to find hasn't been ridden. See, a beast of burden that hasn't been ridden or broken in is, a, is, a is seen as a sacrifice, a holy thing that is pleasing towards God. God's people, the Israelites, would bring, would bring forth a sacrifice of a, a, an unblemished animal to save them from their sins, to make them clean before God. So it seems only fitting that a donkey that has not been broken in is the most fitting mount for a king to ride. And then just to put the finishing touches on the picture, Jesus gives his disciples this instruction in verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. The simple acknowledgement that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. And now the picture is complete. Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and the place of significance of the promised king and it's setting up this undeniable image that we, which means that the moment he enters Jerusalem on that donkey, he is the pre and his presence is the challenge of opposition toward the whole structure and powers of Jerusalem. So the disciples find the colt Jesus knew would be there and bring it to him. They lay their coats on its back and they put Jesus on it. Then as Jesus comes down the mountain of olives, the disciples see that Jesus embodies everything that they had been expecting. After everything that he had done, all the miracles and the teaching, finally the promised king is actually here. And the kingdom that he promised, that started as small as a mustard seed, is starting to grow. And they get so excited, they get swept up. And verse 38, they call out, they call out Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, he in heaven and glory in the highest. I tell you what, it feels really good being a part of a group. Together, we are all on the same page. You're all supporting the same thing. There's just something so amazing about being a part of a group where you 
completely are on the same page, supporting the same thing, and you get behind each other and encourage each other with that. I think it's a huge reason why we come to church, actually. We gather here to support each other for the same thing that we cry about, the same thing that we support, the fact that we praise God and worship Him here. And I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely electrifying. In fact, this sort of reminds me of a time when I was a brand new Christian and there was this young adults night that I went to where all we did were for hours was sing praise to God. I'd never been to anything like that before. I'd never experienced anything like that. But I remember having this amazing feeling of joy and that I felt like my faith was invincible. I'm, I'm wondering, have you ever had that same feeling? Have you ever that feeling of after having a night of coming together or it could be a camp or here at church where you just feel so encouraged by each other, cheering for our amazing God, that you have this feeling of an invincible faith that nothing can ever defeat it? How long did it last for? I remember for me it lasted as long as it took for, I think it was a couple of weeks, when I met up with some really old friends of mine that I'd known for years. I'd known them for a very long time, except the fact that I had just recently become a Christian was still on the down low. That was until my, one of my friends, after a few drinks, decided to completely out me about it. He knew what had happened, but no one else did. And I remember the whole table turning against me. I remember them saying, oh, goody, what are you doing? I mean, I knew something was going on, but this? What is going on? Most of my friends were hardened atheists as well. And I remember the tension of the table growing and growing, they're firing questions at me after question after question. And I remember leaving that lunch feeling completely deflated and defeated. Anything but invincible. And I can't help but be reminded of what Jamie said the other week, that is that principle of the fact that where most of your faith rests in Jesus' earthly ministry will determine how you go when you come up to the world's pushbacks like these. Because Jesus had both popularity and opposition. But if your faith mostly rests on the popularity of Jesus, then when it comes to the, for facing the opposition that has been promised, it is going to hit incredibly hard. Which is exactly the situation that the disciples find themselves in in chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is thinking about following Jesus. That the moment you align yourself with him, you have aligned yourself with his challenge of his opposition. See, but following Jesus does feel like such a great thing while there's momentum, while we're all going in one direction, but not such a great thing when we get out to that first stumbling block and push back from the world around us. It's harsh and it hurts. And once again, it depends on how much of Jesus' earthly ministry your faith is based on will determine how you face that pushback. Looking back at my time with my friends at the restaurant, I can see this at work. I can see the simple fact that I was mostly focusing on the popularity of Jesus because my understanding was so small at that time that I really couldn't reconcile that why they didn't understand, why they didn't get it the way I got it. 
if only they knew what I knew now. I, the, the Jesus I had rejected for so long was the Jesus that was actually a caricature. But now I understood better, and he was amazing. And, and maybe they could understand why he's so amazing. But no matter how many times I tried to tell them, and no many answers, how many answers I gave them, they still could not see. The table remained a sense, had a place of opposition. And we cannot underestimate this in the world. We cannot underestimate the challenge that Jesus is and us as followers to the world around us. The simple fact that Jesus may be the promised king overall is incredibly offensive. So if you're only framing for Jesus is his popularity, then we will crumble at the opposition when it comes and it is promised to come. How do we know this is true though? Well, we do know it's true. Because the very disciples in this passage, they cheer now, but soon they will deny him. So let me ask you, when you come to church or growth group and and you cheer with the rest of us, will you cheer no matter what? Will you join in with us no matter what? Or will you be silenced by the first bit of opposition from friends or family or your workplace? Will you cheer loudly with us no matter what you look like? Or would you rather sing the same chorus as all the rest of the world around us, your friends and family, so that you fit in a little bit better? To be a follower of Jesus is to have a life that stands out. The life that we have, the way we live our daily life, in essence, is the same challenge that Jesus represents in this passage. It is a challenge to the power structures of the world. And we need to keep on living this until he returns, until the day when those who call us foolish will be seen as foolish themselves. On the day that Jesus' upside-down kingdom is actually shown as always being the right way up. And for those who still rebuke on those days, on that day, it will be too late. So as a group of believers, we need to come together. We need to cheer for our humble and eternal king. As a group, we need to keep going until he returns. But something in this passage that I find incredibly encouraging is that, is that even if we are silenced, we are not alone. After the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke the disciples, he responds with, verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Even if we are silenced, the whole of creation will still cheer for our amazing king and its creator. Because everything that is created is created through our king. The Psalms are full of passages stating that Jesus is the king and the Lord is the one who created all things and it even states, even shows us that creation itself praises God. That's why in Psalm 148 it writes that after the psalmist calls all creation to praise the Lord, he writes, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted, his splendor is above the earth and the heaven. See, the world may rebuke how we see the world around it how it functions and how we know it is better to live in it. 
But despite their rebuke and denial, creation itself testifies to our amazing and great king. It witnesses to his majesty and power. The way creation witnesses to God is a lot like if a stranger that had never met me or my family went into our house, even though he'd never met us, he'd have a good sense of who we are and what we're about. A stranger would walk in and see a lounge room that is just conveniently organised to facilitate discussions at least once a week. As he walked further, he would see pictures that would capsulate what we like and what we're into, pictures of, of us and our family showing us, images on the walls showing who we are. The stranger would see paintings made by little children all over the place, giving a clue that there are little kids living here too. And we'd probably pick up on there's a bit of an array of Bibles, both children and kids. See, the stranger may never have met us, but you have a very, very good sense of who we are and what we're about. And it's the same with the created world around us. It speaks to the power and the majesty of God. We are his image bearers and we are charged with reflecting his goodness. So even if people we know don't recognise Jesus as king, the created world around them does. And the cheers, uh, cheers with us, it cheers for our king with us and that is an amazing encouragement. But if Jesus is the true king, then what does that mean and what difference does it make? Well, following the rebuke from the Pharisees, Jesus begins to approach the city and his, and his rightful, as its rightful king, returning to sit on his throne. In verse 41, Jesus sees the city and he weeps. He weeps over its rebellion. He weeps over the corruption and greed. He weeps over the adultery with other, God, with other nations' gods. And he predicts the, that the path that the city is on will lead to its destruction. He predicts that all its people will be killed and not one stone will be left on top of another. Why? Verse 44. Because you did not recognise the time of God's coming. When its true king returns, Israel is found in a sad and sorry state, which is completely incompatible with the kingdom that he is bringing. And so those who do not recognise Jesus as the promised king who God, has, who God has sent are doomed to experience the same judgment that is promised. Jesus has come to set everything right. And if you do not recognise him as king, you too will be judged just like the city at the end of the age. When he restores creation from its fallen state, you are either a member of Jesus' kingdom or you are not. And Jesus' challenge of opposition is also toward you. He is, a, he is challenging the power structures within your own life. He is challenging the corruption and the deceit. And he weeps over it. Jesus is the challenge of opposition towards the order and, the, order and morality of this fallen world, which means that the things of this world must and will change change to be in line with his character and his kingdom. Much like a couple renovating a house. They move in and they want to change it to better suit them, their personality and their purposes. Jesus must renovate our sinful hearts. Replace them 
with a heart that actually desires him and his will. That is exactly what he's doing as he enters the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus has now entered the city and he has reached the heart of, its, of the city both geo, geo, geographically and spiritually and begins to drive out those who were selling in the temple, yelling, verse 46, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is in direct opposition to the corruption of our hearts. The Apostle Paul actually describes our bodies as temples of God. We as believers hold in ourselves the Holy Spirit, God's presence within us. And the Spirit drives out the corruption that is within our hearts. But there is a bit of a problem though. We still live in a sinful world. Temptation just seems to be all around us it's con and conflicts with us each day as we live our daily lives, causing this tension as we, as we go about our days. But we still need to live in a way of which our King has called us to, to be holy as he is holy. But how? Well, first I think we need to be mindful of whom we are spending the most amount of our time with. There's a simple fact that whoever you spend the most of your time with, you will become and be more like. Having unbelieving friends is amazing. It is a great thing. But if you are spending the majority of your time with unbelievers, then you too will slowly become more and more like them. You will act like an unbeliever. So how do we fight against this? How do we fight against the temptation to become more and more like the world? How do we spend time with more believers? Well, actually, it's quite simple because here at DAC, we have it built into the weekly rhythms of the church. On Sundays, we gather here together to worship God. During the week, we meet in either a growth group or a DNA group to encourage each other on a more smaller and personal level. And there's a whole array of other events on top of that. We gather to worship God, to be transformed by him, to have our hearts renewed, and then we encourage each other not to fall by the wayside. Another thing we can do to maintain our holiness that we are called to is to avoid situations that will cause us to want to give in to the corruption of this world. We are all differently susceptible to different things. There is something in each of us that is more inclined to do sinful things than others do. It could be shopping, it could be gambling, it could, it could be drinking, it could be beauty treatments, it could be sex. And we need to avoid situations and communities, particularly spending most of our time in those communities, that will slowly, if not immediately, will eventually change our hearts and corrupt them. After all, didn't Israel's temple go from being the place where God's presence was to becoming a den of thieves? Jesus himself is the challenge and opposition to that corruption. Opposition is rarely one-sided. And we have seen over the past few weeks that the opposition to Jesus as dark storm clouds are rolling in. We have seen that the growing opposition is a reaction to Jesus, who he is, that he is the promised king. He is a challenge in himself to the corrupted powers of this world. And his kingdom is not compatible with the corruption in our hearts and in this world. 
His kingdom is where the first will be last and the last will be first. With those who it belongs to are like a child. But the problem is that the powerful leaders of his day don't want to give up their power. So they need to respond to his opposition with their own opposition. They need to remove that opposition. As we leave the story, the opposition to Jesus' challenge is organising and it is about to pounce. And we will see soon that the chief priests and the leaders are conspiring to kill him. And I hope we see you on Good Friday as David explores the next part of this story and what happens next in the year of opposition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing reminder that we as your followers align ourselves with the challenge that you have against this world. Help us to recognise you more and more as our true king. Help us to stand up for you and cheer for you individually and together. Give us hearts that are ready to support you and to support each other in that. And help illuminate to us the areas that we may be being corrupted and spending too much time with. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.